Okay, so last week we started a study in the book of Esther. And who remembers what we did? Yeah. So we were we did verse one. What did verse one say? Does anybody remember? From in the, so so there was a guy. Sorry. In the days. In the days of. Ahasuerus. Yep. And then what else does it say about him? Okay, so this story, the story of Esther takes place in the days of somebody called Ahasuerus who reigned over this huge empire that went all the way from India to Ethiopia. Okay. And so to kind of put that into context, we looked at like who this guy Ahasuerus was and what kind of brought him to be ruling over all of those provinces. Now, something else we talked about is that this the book of Esther is quite a strange story in the Bible in that it doesn't talk about God anywhere or anything religious. There's no prayer, there's no worship, there's no scripture, that, and there's no God, which is a bit strange. But there is a hint of what's going on in the name of the book and in the name of the main character. Does anybody remember what that was? Okay, so her name, Esther, in Persian, means destiny, fate. But it's literally the name for, the, for, a, for a star. So it's this idea of, like, you know, one's destiny is written in the stars. Astrology type stuff. Okay, cool. But what's the hint? What's the, like, clue as to what's going on in the story of Esther? Isn't there something about being or... Do you remember what? But where's the clue? How do we get a clue as to like that that's what's going on? Do you remember? Yeah, it's like a bunch of those, I've got the name, but like the translation thing, and then you showed the Jesus and how it was like from Jesus. Yeah, so basically Esther is what's called a transliteration of her Persian name. Her Persian name is Sitare, and it means star or fate or destiny in Persian. And then they've just tried to make the similar sound in the in Hebrew language, which is Esther. But there's kind of a pun, a little trick in there, because in Hebrew, those letters, S-T-R, actually mean something. They're the word for hidden or concealed. And so like hidden inside the name of the book and inside the name of the main character is the word hidden. And so when you have a book that says nothing about God, but it's in the Bible, that's probably a clue, right? He's in there, but he's hidden. And so we'll see that in the way that the story unfolds. Um, and so then we looked at the first verse, the following events happened in the days of Ahasuerus. I'm referring to that Ahasuerus who used to rule over 127 provinces, extending all the way from India to Ethiopia. And we said that this guy that's his name in English, but that's the English transliteration of the Hebrew Achashverosh, which was the Hebrew transliteration of the Persian, that one. <laughs> and in Greek, that was transliterated into Xerxes. And so in history, we know this king by the name Xerxes. But in the Bible, he's by the name of Ahasuerus. Cool. Okay. Now we can continue. Verses 2 and 3. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he provided a banquet for all his officials and his servants. The army of Persia and Media was present, as well as the nobles and the, province, and the officials of the provinces. So, a little bit more background. 
Remember Cyrus the Great? Yeah? He became king of a little kingdom called Persia in 559 BC. Nine years later, he united the Median Empire and the Persian Empire to create one Medo-Persian Empire. And he's now king of this giant empire. And then 11 years later, he defeats the Babylonian Empire, which is Book of Daniel. And he now becomes king of basically the largest empire on earth, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then about nine years later, he dies. And his eldest son, Cambyses II, takes over as king in his place. And he rules for eight years. And then he dies in 522 BC. But he doesn't seem to have had any children. Or at least not any children that people recognized as legitimate children. And so after Cambyses died, the whole Medo-Persian Empire basically descended into civil war. And it was a man by the name of Darius who emerged as the king. He won, he basically won the civil war and established himself as the new king of the Medo-Persian Empire. He was 28 years old at the time. Um, he wasn't technically related to Cyrus the Great, except maybe distantly, although he claimed to be descended from some like line of ancient Persian kings. But as I said, wasn't technically related to Darius, but he married carefully uh, to, to Cyrus and he ended up marrying, he married a lady who was the daughter of somebody important in Persia. And then after he became king, he married two of Cyrus the Great's daughters. So now he's kind of like married into the Persian nobility family. And later he married another three, three ladies um, who were also important. And then he ruled this Medo-Persian empire for 36 years. And as far as we can tell, he's a really good king. Um, he established, a, so this is a huge empire. One of the problems with having such a massive empire before the days of like the internet and stuff is like you have to administer it, right? You need communication. You need to have people appointed all through the empire to collect taxes and run, you know, rule the empire the way that you want it ruled sitting here in your capital. And so he established an administrative system throughout his empire that was like really impressive. He built a road all the way from Susa to Sardis, which is like almost two and a half thousand kilometers, which allowed travel, transport, communication through his empire. Um, and he also built spectacular palaces in Susa and also in a place called Persepolis, which became his, the two capitals of his empire. Um, unfortunately, his palaces in Susa there's basically nothing left. They were destroyed in a fire in the, um, about 100 years later during one of his descendants' rule. Um, but you can still see the remains of his palaces in Persepolis. And this is, like I said, a reconstruction of one of them. Um, this was, was called the Apana, Ap, what? Apadana. And it was basically the place where he had his throne and where all like visitors and guests would come and appear before the king it was in this audience hall of Apadana. Um, and the steps and it was, it was absolutely huge. It was built on an area that's apparently 450 meters by 300 meters platform, which is like 18 rugby fields. And it was, had 70, two pillars that were 25 meters tall, which is absolutely massive, which held the roof up and it was big enough to, ha like to have hundreds, maybe thousands of people gathering before the king. Um, and the, that big staircase at the front, as well as a lot of the pillars are still standing today. You can, you can see them in, in Iran, which is pretty cool. So he was basically, during Darius's reign, that was really the height of the Medo-Persian Empire. He was, in a sense, their greatest, most like, wealthiest, most powerful king. Now, this Darius also played quite an important role in Israeli history. Because if you remember, when Cyrus conquered Babylon, we think he was met by Daniel 
who gave him a scroll of Isaiah that talked about him. Do you guys remember that? And he then issues this decree in his first year as king, Cyrus. He says, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judea or Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, may go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and may build the temple of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Anyone who survives in any of those places where he is a resident foreigner, must be helped by his neighbors with silver, gold, equipment, and animals, along with voluntary offering for the temple of God, which is in Jerusalem. So that was pretty cool. Cyrus is now king of the entire Persian empire. That includes Israel. And he frees all these captive Jews that were part of the Babylonian empire. He says, you guys can go back to Israel, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild God's temple there. And so about 50,000 of them went back but they only got as far as building the foundation. And then they got discouraged by people who were trying to, were making trouble for them. And they also got distracted building their own houses and reestablishing their farms and stuff. And so it, the temple just sat as foundations for a bit over 15 years. Then in Darius' second year, you have the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah who God speaks to and tells to go and encourage the people, the Jews, to, to finish what they started, to rebuild the temple. And so that happens in 520 BC, just, just into Darius's reign. Now, when the Jews start building their temple, the, the locals who are there, the Persian governors, a guy called Tatanai, he's not happy about this. He basically says, who gave you permission to start building this massive thing here? And so they say to him, Cyrus the Great told us to build this temple. And so he writes back to Darius and says, can you check the records and see whether that's true? Did Cyrus actually give the Jews permission to rebuild their temple? And so then in the book of Ezra, Darius the king issued orders and they searched in the archives of the treasury, which were deposited there in Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of Ekbatana, which we'll see later probably, which is in the province of Media, and it was inscribed as follows. Memorandum. In the first year of his reign, King Cyrus gave orders concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be built as a place where sacrifices are offered. Let its foundations be set in place. Its height is to be 90 feet and its width 90 feet, about 30 meters, with three layers of large stones and one layer of timber. The expense is to be subsidized by the royal treasury. So basically, we'll pay for the temple to be rebuilt, the Persian Empire. Furthermore, let the gold and silver vessels of the temple of God, which Nebuchadnezzar brought from the temple in Jerusalem and carried to Babylon, be returned and brought back to their proper place in the temple in Jerusalem. They'd be deposited in the temple of God. And so Cyrus, they find this thing written there that basically says, yes, Cyrus said, rebuild the temple, and we need to pay for them to rebuild the temple and return to them everything that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple. And so Darius orders Tatanai, the governor back in Judah, basically to leave the Jews alone, let them build God's temple. And he also issues the following decree. He says, from the royal treasury, from the taxes of tra trans-Euphrates, the complete costs are to be given to these men so that they may so that there may be no interruption of the work. Whatever is needed must be given to them daily without any neglect, so that they may be offering incense to the God of heaven and may be praying for the good fortune of the king and his family. So Darius basically says, like, give them everything they need so that they can build this temple and pray for me. And then he says, I hereby give orders that if anyone changes this directive, a beam is to be pulled out from his house and he is to be raised up and impaled on it, and his house is to be reduced to a rubbish heap for his indiscretion. May God, who makes his name to reside there, overthrow any king or nation who reaches out to cause such change so as to destroy this temple of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have given orders. Let them be carried out with precision. So that's pretty serious. Basically told them, you know, beware, don't play games. This temple needs to be built. And so anyway, that's pretty cool. And the temple, it took four and a half years. It was finally completed in 515 BC during Darius's reign. Now, around 499 BC, so just, just past 500 BC, 
The Greek cities up here in an area called Anatolia, which is in the western part of Turkey. Basically, this is Greece here, right? And there are a lot of Greeks also living on that side of the sea in what was Persian territory. But the Greeks are not ruled by the Persians, right? And so the Greeks in mainland Greece start helping the Greeks who are living in the Persian Empire to like rebel against Darius. And so they start causing lots of trouble. That's in basically 500 BC, 499. Um, and that continues for six years. Eventually in 593, seven, yeah, six, six, seven years later, the Persians are able to like put an end to that but not before the Greeks had basically destroyed Sardis, which was the, the Persians' like capital in the west of their empire. And so, um, so Darius then bega begins planning an invasion of mainland Greece to punish them for what they did to Sardis, to prevent them from causing any more problems in his kingdom, and also to expand his empire. And so in 490 BC, he starts that invasion. And initially it goes really well. He's able to capture a whole bunch of important Greek islands in the, in the sea here. But then he lands on the 5th of September, he lands in a place called Marathon, which is 40 k's to the east of Athens in Greece. And then things start going really badly wrong. And basically the Athenian army, through some clever strategy, is able to rout the Persian army and defeat them and they basically are forced to retreat back across to Turkey to Anatolia back into the Persian Empire and that's basically the end of Darius's plans for invading Greece. He goes back to Susa probably um, and four years later he becomes ill in 486 and 30 days later he dies. And that's when Xerxes, his son, becomes king. Now, Xerxes wasn't Darius's oldest child, and he wasn't even Darius's oldest son. But he was Darius's oldest son to a daughter of Cyrus. Yes? Remember, Darius had six wives. He had at least 18 children. Xerxes was the oldest son of one of his wives called Atossa, who was a daughter of Cyrus. And so that gave Xerxes legitimacy as a king of Persia that none of Darius's other sons had, because he was a direct descendant of Cyrus the Great. Yeah? And so from very early on in Cyrus's life, Darius had chosen him to be his successor. And in fact, there's this carving on the northern steps of that big palace in Persepolis. So this is steps that everybody who came to see Darius would have to walk past. And apparently it was showing here Xerxes behind his father's throne. And so everybody who came to see Darius in Persepolis knew that Xerxes was going to be his successor. And so... When Darius died, there was no real opposition. Xerxes basically took over the throne in peace at the age of 33, and he became the undisputed king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And so we arrive at the story of Esther, which we're told begins, begins in the third year of his reign, so about 483 BC. And we're told that he was seated on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel or palace. And so Susa, Susa was this ancient city about 400 kilometers to the east of Babylon. So that's sort of the distance from here to Wanganui. And like I said, Darius made Susa and a place called Persepolis, his capitals, uh, and built these magnificent palaces there. But Susa was only really used in winter months because of the extreme heat of summer in Susa, which apparently you have average temperatures of about 45 degrees Celsius. 
which is really hot. Around the time of Jesus, there was a Greek historian called Strabo who wrote something like an encyclopedia that he called Geography. And he records this. He was referring to some other records that he was using. He said, although Susus, this is Susa, is fertile, it, is, it has a hot and scorching atmosphere, and particularly in the neighborhood of the city, according to that writer. At any rate, he says that when the sun is hottest at noon, the lizards and the snakes could not cross the street in the city quickly enough to prevent their being burned to death in the middle of the streets. So it's very hot. Apparently the reptiles would just die if they tried to cross the street in the middle of the day. And so mostly uh, the kings were only in Susa in winter and in summer they went to the palace in Persepolis. But uh, Xerxes is in Susa, so we presume this is probably winter in 443 BC. And then it says that the story starts in the third year of his reign. So Xerxes became king in 486 BC and almost immediately when he became king, there were uprisings in Egypt and also in Babylon that he had to deal with. And it took him two years to sort that out and to restore peace in those parts of his kingdom. Um, and so, this is now the third year, and we're told that Xerxes provided a banquet for all his officials and his servants, and that apparently included the Persian nobles and also their armies, right? The army of Persia and Media was present as well as the nobles and the officials of the provinces. The Bible doesn't tell us why he provided this banquet what the reason for it was. But it's quite interesting. There's a parallel to something. There's a Greek historian we talked about him last week called Herodotus, who wrote about 50 years later. And he wrote this, that after Egypt was subdued, which was 444 BC, Xerxes, being about to take in hand the expedition against Athens, called together an assembly of the noblest Persians to learn their opinions and to lay before them his own designs. And so at exactly the same time that the story of Esther says this banquet is happening, Herodotus said Xerxes gathered together all the important people in his kingdom to basically tell him about his plans to invade Greece. Again, well not again, to avenge his father, who failed in Greece to restore the pride of the Persian Empire and then also to expand his, um, his empire. And basically, he wants them to support him because he doesn't want to suffer a similar defeat to his dad. So he needs to make sure that the entire Persian Empire is behind him and is going to support him and provide army and that kind of stuff. And so it seems very likely that this banquet that we read about in the book of Esther is exactly the same gathering that Herodotus writes about happening then. That, like I said, that Xerxes is getting together all of his generals, all of his commanders and their armies to, well, we'll see, uh, to prepare for war. Verse 4, he says, He displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his magnificence majestic greatness for a lengthy period of time, 180 days to be exact. How long is that? Yeah, six months. So it seems that part of his effort to like consolidate, to bring the support behind him was he paraded his wealth and power before the people for six months. And so that was basically a way of demonstrating, of making absolutely clear that he is the undisputed king of the largest empire on earth, and that he has the power and the resources to win any battle he fights and to reward anybody who proves themselves valuable to him, right? And so to get everybody in, all these generals in behind him, supporting him. And just so that you know, the Persian Empire was unimaginably wealthy. When hundreds of years later, when Alexander the Great, we talked about this last week, when he eventually got to Susa, before he got there, the Persian king at that time was Darius III. Before Alexander arrived, Darius had already got rid of like vast amounts of treasure out of his cities. But when Alexander arrived in Susa, he found 40,000 
talents of silver, which is about one to 2,000 tons of silver, and another 10,000 talents of gold coins, which was about 1,000 tons of gold coins, minted gold coins. And depending on how you do the calculations, that'd be somewhere between 20 billion and one and a half trillion dollars worth of treasure that he found in Susa. Sorry? This is, this is part of the reason why Alexander was as successful as quickly as he was, is because he was able to gather so much money to be able to pay huge armies to support him. But anyway, so that was in Susa. He had about 50,000 talents two to three thousand tons of gold and silver as well as a different historian plutarch he says furniture and other treasures of incalculable value as well as water transported from the nile and the danube so the nile is the river in egypt and the danube is up in europe so they had containers of water from the nile and from the danube sitting in their treasuries as testimony to the extent of their dominions and a proof that they were masters of the world. Anyway, so that's Susa. From Susa, Alexander went on to Persepolis. In Persepolis, he found 120,000 talents of gold and silver. So that's like 5,000 tons. And then from there, he went up to Ekbatana, which was Cyrus's capital, and there he found 180,000. So, like I said, the Persian Empire was unimaginably wealthy. And uh, Xerxes had lots of riches and splendor to display. Somebody want to read this? Five to nine, yeah. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the gardens of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were, were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. Cool. Okay, so Xerxes has had already a banquet for his the officials, all the important people from all over his empire. He's then had six months where he's been just like flaunting his wealth and power. And now he f has one more banquet that lasts a week. And this time, everybody from the whole city of Susa is invited. Doesn't matter how rich or poor, where you are in the city, you can come and join the banquet of the king in the palace, which you can imagine like as an ordinary person getting invited into this kind of celebration must have been crazy. The couches were apparently made of gold and silver. Probably with lots of cushions and stuff, I don't know. There was. <laughs> no. Well, they talked about the curtains and stuff being all the fancy linen and these sorts of things. And the floors was literally a mosaic of pearls and precious stones. They served wine in solid gold cups. Everyone unique. So these aren't like mass produced. And apparently they can drink however much or however little, but however much they want. It's open bar. And the Persians were apparently known for their drinking. Another Greek called Xenophon writes that they drink so much that instead of carrying anything in, they, are carried, they themselves are carried out when they are no longer able to stand straight enough to walk out. So 
You can probably picture what this party looked like. It would have been messy. The Bible has some stuff to say about alcohol and in particular getting drunk. Proverbs says, wine is a mocker and strong drink is a brawler. Whoever goes astray by them is not wise. What does that mean? Why? Why? What does it say? It says it's not wise, that, you're, that if you go astray in this way, you're not wise. But why is it not wise? What does it say? What's the problem? What does it say? What does that mean? <laughs> what is brawling? Fighting, yeah. It makes you fight. Just not... I mean, that's pretty, pretty accurate. And what do you think it means? Wine is a mocker. <laughs> Perhaps. It, it either means that, it, well, I think it probably a bit of both. It, makes, it can make you mean, maybe. It also makes a fool of you, right? Um, makes a mockery out of you. Turns you into fool, causes you to fight, and so if you spend your time getting drunk, you're not wise. Proverbs 23 says, Do not spend time among drunkards or among those who eat too much food, <laughs> because drunkards and gluttons become impoverished and sleepiness clothes them with rags. What does that mean? Greedy people, so they're either drinking too much or eating too much. <laughs> they, they become poor. Why? Spend all their money on wine and food. Honest, honestly, I... Yeah. Growing up, it shocked me how much money people spent on a Friday night in town on alcohol. It's crazy, crazy. They'll go out hundreds, hundreds of dollars every weekend buying drinks for themselves and for other people. I never got that. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, definitely, they probably will spend too much money on drink and food. But what else does it say? Yeah. <laughs> what happens when you have a really big meal? What happens if you're out all night drinking? Sleepy. Yeah. So basically, you become lazy, you're always asleep, you're going to end up poor, and if you hang out with people who are, who are doing these things, apparently you'll end up poor too, according to Proverbs 23. Okay, later in that same proverb, it says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has conflict? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has tired red eyes? Those who linger over wine, those who go looking for mixed wine, which I think is very funny. Like modern translation, are you sad and depressed? Yeah. Are you always fighting? Yeah. Do you have injuries and you don't know how you got them? No, I'm dying. Are your eyes tired and red? It's because you spend too much time in the pub and the clubs <laughs> and the bars. Home. Yeah, so very uh, relatable, relatable to it's within society. This is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say not relatable. Relevant. Relevant? Yeah. Like, yeah, this is not, nothing's changed, right? This is written 3,000 years ago. Not, not a lot has changed. Okay. Then it gets a bit more serious. Proverbs 31, it, it says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to crave strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of the oppressed. So this is advice that a queen's mother, perhaps Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, we're not really sure if that's, if Lemuel is, is a name used, being used for Solomon, or if this is some other king, we don't know, because we don't know of a king by the name of Lemuel. But this proverb is a mom speaking to her son who is king and giving him advice. And she says to him, it's not good for kings to drink wine. 
at least not to get drunk with wine, or rulers to crave strong drink? Why not? Yeah, you'll forget God's word, you'll forget God, and you're going to make bad decisions, which we're going to see in a bit, a bit later. You're not going to be following his will for your life. And Hosea 4 says the same thing. It says, old and new wine, take away the understanding of my people. Then we get to Galatians 5. Do you guys remember Cultivate? We looked at what? Hebrews, Hebrews 11, faith, and where did we look at fruit? Galatians 5, we looked at fruit of the Spirit. But before the fruit of the Spirit, Paul talk, describes the works of the flesh, yeah? Which we looked at briefly before we started focusing on the fruits of the Spirit. And there... Paul says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. Envying, murder, drunkenness, wild partying, and similar things. I am warning you, as I had warned you before, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that raises like a whole other discussion of what it means to inherit or not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, but for now, let's just say that the, the goal as far as God is concerned is not just to get you into heaven in your broken, sinful state. God actually wants to transform you. He wants to clean you. He wants to transform you, conform you into the image of Jesus. He wants to make you like Jesus. And basically, if you're practicing these things that are described in the works of the flesh, if these are a description of your life and the way that you live your life, then at the very least, you're not being made like Jesus. And that's a problem. And so we are told as Christians, don't get drunk with wine. That was just probably the most popular drink at the time. This doesn't mean you can get drunk with other stuff. Just don't get drunk is the point. He says, don't get drunk with wine. That leads to debauchery. It leads to sin. It leads to bad decisions, pain, trouble in your life. And as we'll see in a second, it, cause, yeah, it makes, causes you to make really dumb decisions and do really dumb things. Instead, as Christians, we're told, rather than being filled with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit, which obviously leads to better decisions. Yeah. Okay, so let's go on. The men are all drinking with Xerxes, and apparently Queen Vashti has her own party for the ladies in the palace. Now, we don't know much about Queen Vashti. Uh, there's no queen by that name in secular history that we know of. Um, Jewish tradition says that she was the great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. But again, we don't really know because there's very little information to go by. But regardless, the name Vashti was Old Persian for beautiful woman. I think so. They're different opinions, but I think so. Don't know. It depends. It's a mixture, and I don't know in particular cases. Like, a lot of them, the names are more like titles than names, yeah, but yeah. it's hard to know. Um, <clears throat> anyway, like the name Esther, there's a kind of a pun in the Hebrew. Again, this is a transliteration, presumably, of Persian, but in Hebrew, the word, those letters, the, sh the shatah, means to drink, which becomes very relevant to her story. Um, so there's kind of a pun in Vashti's name as well in the Hebrew. Anyway, let's carry on. Who else wants to read? Anybody? You can read again if you like. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, 
he commanded, oh no, Mehuman, Vista, Abona, Victor, Abagtha, Zetha, and Carcass. Some great names in there. Some eunuchs, which served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials. Okay, the we'll stop there. All right, sorry, yeah, she was very beautiful. Okay, so <laughs> we're seven days into the party and Xerxes is apparently merry with wine. He's drunk. And so he makes a really dumb decision. He calls for his queen Vashti to come and parade herself in front of his drunk friends so they can see how beautiful she is. Now, again, the Jewish tradition, the, the Babylonian Talmud says that actually what happened, again, this is, we don't know if this is true or not. It's not in the Bible, but this is the story, is that there was an argument started between the Medes and the Persians as to whose women were the most beautiful. And the Medes were like, no, the, the Median women, they're the most beautiful in the world. And the Persians are like, no, no, it's the Persian women. And apparently then Xerxes says, well, my wife isn't Mede or Persian. She's Babylonian. She's Chaldean. Do you want to see her? So again, don't know if that's true, but it's not hard to imagine. I can imagine something like that happening because boys are dumb. Okay. So, verse, so, so he sends his eunuchs, his servants, to go and get her and prepare her, get her all dressed up so that she can come and show off her beauty in front of his friends. And Queen Vashti refused. She refused to come at the king's bidding, conveying, at, refused to come at the king's bidding, conveyed through the eunuchs. Then the king became extremely angry, angry and his rage consumed him. So... It's also not hard to imagine why Vashti didn't want to do that. She wasn't interested in being paraded through a hall full of drunk men. At the same time, this must have taken a huge amount of courage. To say no. To say no to the king. And a lot of integrity because I imagine she could easily have lost her life for doing that. It wasn't that hard, as we'll see later on. Like, if you just came to speak to the king without being called, you could be executed. And so, um, as far as I'm concerned, he asks Vashti, did she live up to her name? I kind of think so. Um, there's different, uh, anyway, there are different stories and ideas. But, like, to me, I think she's an amazing example of somebody who, um, well, you're all going to find yourselves in situations where people, and perhaps, yeah, where people are going to pressure you to do something that you're not comfortable with. For her, like the consequences were potentially extreme, right? How much integrity does she have that she would be willing to, she would rather die than descend to doing what he's asking her to do, you know? Um, like I said, that's something that probably you're all going to experience at some time, and so be a Vashti. <laughs> Don't compromise your integrity for the sake of others, especially when they're drunk. But anyway, Xerxes is not happy. Remember, he's spent six months. He spent six months trying to convince the people of his power and authority to make sure that they respect him and will follow him into battle, right? That's the point of this, this whole seven-day banquet that he's paid for for everybody in the city of Susa. It's the point of the six-month demonstration of his wealth and power, right? All of that to make sure that everybody respects him and now all of that could be ruined by his dumb decision to call Vashti and Vashti's refusal to come. Because basically, like, if his own wife doesn't respect him, why should anybody else? And so the whole, this whole thing is ruined. And so you can see why he's furious with Vashti. But probably, if he had any wisdom and insight, probably a little bit angry at himself as well for putting himself in that situation. Um, 
It's also worth remembering who Xerxes was. As we talked about last week, this is the guy who later, when a storm destroys his bridge, is going to order his soldiers to go and whip the sea to teach it a lesson for for standing up against him. Yeah, exactly. So, again, very, very brave and courageous to refuse the king. Yeah. Then, Then the king said to the wise man who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. Those closest to him being, oh no, Kashina, Shithar, and Martha, Tarshish, Maris, Masina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. Do I keep going? Mm-hmm. What shall we do to Queen Vashti, according to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, brought to her by the eunuchs? Yeah. Eunuchs. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a few things in there that I find quite interesting. The first thing is, there are people who claim that the book of Esther is basically fiction. That it was just a fictional story that the Jews made up to give some basis for this feast that they celebrate called Purim. I personally, that doesn't make sense to me. Like that's got it the back way around because rather the fact that they've been celebrating this feast for 2000 years is evidence that the story actually happened. Otherwise, where did the feast come from? You would have had to have had them celebrating some feast that had no reason for long enough that they could make up this story without everybody knowing it's wrong. But not, yeah, like it, it, it's a bit weird anyway, but also, I don't think it reads like fiction. These, the names that you're reading in here, where the author is deciding to, to note down who the princes of Persia were, the seven princes. In the earlier one, the names of the eunuchs, there's, they, that adds nothing to the story, right? It means nothing that we know what the names of these people are. It's only, it only has historical re- relevance. Um, which, like I said, to me speaks of it's like that, that it isn't just fiction, that it was written to people who would actually be able to go, oh, yeah, 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 those were the kings, the princes, the whatevers. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing that I think is quite cool is that even two and a half thousand years ago, Xerxes is king of this entire empire. He doesn't just decide for himself what he's going to do. Apparently, standard practice in the Persian Empire was that you basically go and consult with your lawyers before you make a decision this big. And so he goes and consults with those who are, who are proficient, who are experts in the law to find out what the right thing to do is. And then finally, I assume that the answer to Xerxes could have been, you should execute Vashti. I don't know why it wasn't, but it wasn't. This is what they say. And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women, so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. So it's quite an interesting argument that the lawyers make. Basically, they say, like, if your wife won't respect you, then none of our wives will respect us. So you need to make an example of Vashti for the sake, not only of your sake, but the, for the sake of all the other men in the kingdom, because the wives are all going to be like, whatever. We don't have to do what you say. Queen Vashti doesn't do what the king says, so why should we listen to you? Um, that's basically their argument. Uh, but I suspect that there was also like this undercurrent of, and also, if your wife doesn't respect you, then like, why should we respect you? And so they say, 
If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him, and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honour their husbands, both great and small. Okay. So their advice is what? Get rid of her. Replace her with someone more beautiful. At least... Someone more respectful. Yeah, somebody who, more, yeah, who better suits the position. It's quite, it's quite tough. Like, she's not being executed, but she's also not being divorced. It's not like she can go out and start a new life, right? She's still going to be there in the palace, but she's no longer going to be queen, and she's never going to be allowed to see her husband again. So she's basically going to live the rest of her life as a prisoner in the palace, which why, is... Why can't she move away? She wouldn't be allowed to. She belongs to the king. Can't have the queen out there, like, you know, could cause trouble. People, like, yeah, use her to try to get access to the throne and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, so it's pretty rough. But anyway, that's what the lawyers advise the king. And they recommend that he publish this decision throughout his entire kingdom, which, as, we, as we've seen, is absolutely massive. And apparently then, all the women will give honor to their husbands. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man shall be master in his own house, and speak in the language of his own people. So the king agreed with their advice, and he did what they said. Now, the administrative language, the language that was used in the way that we, well, yeah, the language that was used throughout their kingdom was Aramaic. And anybody who was educated and had some official position in the kingdom was expected to be able to speak and write in Aramaic. But Xerxes published this decree in every single language that was used in his entire massive kingdom because he wanted everybody to understand it. What was the decree? It was that every man should be ruling in his family. Basically, he should be in charge of his own house. You made a face, and I think it's because really this is kind of a silly command. You can't, if somebody respects you, then they will be inclined to obey you. If they don't respect you, you can't force them to respect you by forcing them to obey you, right? And usually, the more you use power to make somebody obey you, the less they respect you. Or at least that's, yeah, that's my, my experience. And so, if you're having to command something like this, if you're having to command the wives to respect their husbands, there's a deeper problem. And it's not really going to be fixed by saying, you have to respect your husband. If that kind of makes sense. With that said, we've looked at a somewhat similar passage in the New Testament. It's the very, very first piece of scripture that we ever looked at together when I was teaching here, which was in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And the wife must respect her husband. Do you remember that lesson? Do you remember what we said about this? Mm-hmm. 
But I guess why anyway, why set it up this way? Why would God, why, why should God tell wives to submit to their husbands? Why isn't it husbands who submit to their wives? Why does anybody have to submit to anybody? That might be a practical question, but yeah. Because Adam came first, maybe? Because... But like, does that really have to affect the way we relate to our... Why do you have seven answers? You ask the question. No, it's a good answer. It's a good, good answer. But it seems somewhat arbitrary, right? Like, it means there's no real like reason behind it. You've just chosen this thing, and then that's the way we're going to do it. Uh, yeah. What suggests that to you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we talked about. Um, I don't want to go too much into it this morning, otherwise there'll be like a whole other lesson. But you see it throughout this passage. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the body, as also Christ is the head of the church. The model, the, the relationship between a husband and a wife, as it's described in the Bible, is all paralleled with our relationship to Jesus. As the, as the church, as we submit to Jesus, so a wife must submit to her husband in everything. And so what you find is that the whole husband-wife relationship is set up in such a way that it will be a picture of our relationship to Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's, as, though, it's as though the marriage relationship is, has been created as a model of our relationship to God. And it's so that Jesus can then point to our husband-wife relationship and say, just like you guys relate to each other, that's how I relate to you. But in order for him to do that, there needs to be a particular way that they relate to each other. Yeah? Because if we all just figured out our own way in a, in, a, in a marriage, in how we relate and who's head and who isn't, then God, then Jesus couldn't point to that and say, that's like me. Because it may or may not be, Right? The reason why he sets it up this way is so that we would be a picture of that relationship. But as you said, there's two sides to the coin. On the one hand, wives are told to submit to their husbands, but at the same time, hus well, so if we're a picture of, if the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and, the, and us, and the wives are told to submit to their husbands. That's how they're supposed to relate. That's how we're supposed to relate to Jesus. He's our head. How is the husband, do you think, supposed to relate to the wife? How does Jesus relate to us? Love, right? Yes. And that's exactly what it says. Husbands, you are to love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for us. That's, that's a pretty high standard, right? In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Nevertheless, each of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself. And so you see... In a Christian marriage, the respect of a wife of her husband is a response to the love of the husband to the wife. If, if as a husband you love your wife the way that Christ, the way that Jesus loves you, and what is love, practically? Self-sacrifice, right? It's putting the other person ahead of yourself. So you as a husband are putting your wife ahead of you. 
right? You're loving her the way that Christ loves you. Then chances are she's not going to have trouble respecting you. And if your wife doesn't respect you, the answer isn't, read Ephesians 5. You're commanded to respect me. If your wife doesn't respect you, what you actually need to do is look at yourself and be like, am I loving her the way that Christ loves me? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is there a view you would draw me that comes to mind of like actually like loving today? Yeah. Isaac loved Rebecca. <laughs> Worked for fourteen years for her, and the rest of the rest of the way through her life, it's obvious that he really loved her. And I think um, Jacob also and rachel like there are a few but, but yeah no exactly and, and in life right it's often yeah. not like that either but definitely the picture that we're given in the bible is something quite incredible and like i said the, the standards are incredibly high like as a husband and yeah with the, what i said is like we're essentially playing out a drama we're acting something out god's given us roles he said i want you to play this role and I want you to play this role and if we play our roles right then God can point to us and be like this is a picture of my relationship to you and so somebody has to play one role or the other and he's given woman the role to play of the church of his beloved that puts it should come with tremendous uh, humility and responsibility as a guy to be trying to represent Jesus in that picture um, yeah, it definitely shouldn't result in arrogance. It should be the exact opposite when you realize how inadequate you are for the role you're supposed to be playing. Anyway, all of that to say that this decree from Xerxes is kind of a silly, silly decree as far as I'm concerned. You, can't, you can force somebody to fear you. You can force them to obey you. You can't force them to respect you. Um, but that's where they are. And so that's the end of chapter one. Yeah, we got through a whole, well, almost the whole chapter. I think I'm hopeful we'll be able to do a chapter a week because as I said, most of it's story. So basically at this stage you have Xerxes, he's preparing for battle. As part of that preparation, he has this huge celebration where he shows off all of his gold and silver and everything that's valuable to him. Gets himself really drunk asks his queen to come and show herself off to his friends. She says no, and now he's lost his queen. She's lost her position as queen, and he's, yeah, he's now needs a new queen. And that will bring us to chapter um, two. Shall we pray? Does anybody want to pray? Does anybody have things they want prayer for? Yeah, I'll pray. Lord God, again, I thank you so much for your word. Um, I thank you for the beauty in it. I thank you that it, uh, just how, how exciting it is to explore. And um, I thank you for the lessons that are in it, even in something that's fairly, uh, it's not Romans. Um, but Lord, I thank you for the encouragement that there is there to be, to have integrity and courage, um, not to give in when people pressure us to do things that we know that we shouldn't. Lord, I pray that you would help these young, these young people as they enter adulthood to, um, to have wisdom with alcohol, Lord, and protect them from some of the the pain and, and 
and troubles that, that can bring into their lives. Um, yeah, and I thank you that you'd be with us all this week. You keep us all safe. There wouldn't be any more of these crazy storms and that you'd bring us back again next week to read more of your word. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.